All right, like Brian said, we are in uh, John chapter 4. Um, we're actually going to camp out in John chapter 4 for um, the next four weeks, okay? And I think it's just one week after that, and then we'll have an announcement, uh, a special Sunday announcement on August 9th, talking about some family stuff, and then we will uh, get back into Ephesians after that. That's the plan. It could change. Uh, the title of this sermon is Re- Recognizing Revival Moments, Part 1. We'll do Part 2 next week. Um, here's the deal. It is my personal opinion. I could be wrong, but it's my personal opinion that everything we are experiencing right now is actually like uh, labor pains for the birth of revival that is coming. And like labor, some of us are like, yo, just get me the epidural. <laughs> like, I'm done with this. Some of us are like, I'm all natural, like leaning into it. Whatever it is, the life is coming. The new life is coming either way. And I said it the other week, but sometimes when we talk about, think about revival, we only think about the macroscopic aspect of it, like the big picture, like a mass of people all coming to faith in Jesus, Um, a mass of people all in the church waking up and getting on fire and becoming obedient to the call of God on their lives. But we can often miss the microscopic aspect of revival that makes up that gigantic uh, macroscopic part of it. The fact that God is saving individuals, right? And that he is waking up individuals in the church, uh, bringing fire in them. Individuals are becoming obedient. Great movements of God are made up of millions of individual moments with God that all collide with one another at the same time. My wife Emily and I had, uh, I think, one of those moments just two weeks ago. We got away for a couple of days and uh, it was pretty cool. Some people prayed for us two different things or the exact same thing, but two different people who didn't know, they prayed the exact same thing for us. And it was about perspective, that God was gonna give us new perspective. And it's exactly what he did. He gave us new perspective on three pretty specific things. Like uh, one having to do with some decisions that we're making that affect us significantly financially down the road. Um, and then some priorities, the things we're prioritizing with our kids, and then a brand new perspective on our actual geographical community that we live in. And uh, it was the kinds of things that if we responded to the new perspective, it would have profound, honestly, uncomfortable, um, like, uh, it would be uncomfortable for us, implications. It would be uncomfortable, have imp- uncomfortable in- implications, but I think really fruitful implications on us. It was, it was significant things. And the next day, Emily said to me, Dom, I think this is God bringing revival in our family. And I was like, oh my gosh, I think you're right. She was like, I think this is God answering in our family what we've been praying for, for the church. And she was right. I was like, yes, that's exactly what this is. And when we were able to identify it, okay, stick with me. When we were able to identify it as, oh, this is like a divine revival moment, an individual revival moment where God is like waking something up in us. When we were able to identify it as that, it allowed us to uh, dive into it with intentionality and, and, uh, be more prayerful about it instead of it just being like, oh, this is a thing that happened. We were like, oh, this is a God moment that's happening. In John chapter four, where we're gonna spend the next few weeks, there are these two huge divine revival moments. There's really three of them, but we're gonna gonna really focus on two of them today. One was with the person who just doesn't know Jesus, okay? Who's so far from 
the life that he wanted to offer her. And then one happens with the church people. It's exactly what we're praying right now for this season. God would wake up unsaved people to, to salvation and he'd wake up us in the church to, to press in and give us a new perspective and enlighten us into what he's, what he's doing. What's crazy about both of these divine revival moments is that both groups missed them. They totally missed them. They did not see them until Jesus like, kind of forced them to see them. So on one hand, I'm encouraged because I'm like, well, even if I can't see it, it doesn't mean God's not moving, okay? We just sang it in the bridge. Even if I can't see it, if I can't feel it, it doesn't mean you're not, you're not moving. I'm encouraged by that. But I'm also like, dang, Lord, I don't want to miss it. I don't want to not see it because when I see it, then I can participate in it, which is what Jesus wants us to do. So I think there's some of this happening right now. We're just not seeing it yet. Maybe some of us are. I'm hoping that this sermon and specifically next week's sermon will encourage us that uh, God may be moving, even if we don't see it, and will help us to open our eyes to see what is happening uh, and what he's doing. So over the next four weeks, we're going to look at all the verses in John chapter 4, but today we're just going to kind of jump around a bit. So let me give us a synopsis of the whole story so you can get a big picture of it. Then we'll dive into um, this particular sermon, Recognizing Revival Moments, part one. Here's the story. Uh, Jesus and the disciples are going from Judea up to Galilee, okay? From the south to the north. Jesus is like, I need to go through Samaria, which was crazy because Jews never went through Samaria. The disciples go away. They go to get some food and they're going to come back and meet Jesus. Jesus is alone. He goes to this well where there's this woman all by herself in the middle of the day who was, uh, had been shunned by her community because of the lifestyle choices she had made. Jesus actually really honors her and gives her a lot of dignity by even speaking to her and then asking her to help him by giving him some water. Uh, tells her like, hey, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd actually be asking me for water and not me asking you for water. And I'd give you eternal water. And she's like, what? She doesn't get it. She doesn't understand it. Then they start talking about, they're kind of debating about this social, cultural church issue about worship that we're going to get into in a couple of weeks. Then he tells her, I'm the Messiah. And everything changes right there in that moment. She leaves her bucket. She goes away. As she's going away, the disciples start coming back. And Jesus is like, hey, I know you thought the harvest wasn't coming yet. It's right here. It's right now. And uh, the woman comes back with a bunch of people from her community. They meet Jesus. Jesus stays with them for a little while and revival comes to her community. A bunch of people come to faith in Jesus. That's the story. That's the big picture. That's the story that we're looking at. Like I said, today we're going to be jumping around to some specific uh, things I want us to recognize um, in this text. Lord, please speak to us now. Please open our eyes. It's really the, the, so much of the tone and the tenor of what you're saying to this woman and to the disciples. Open your eyes. Open our eyes to see, to hear right now what you're doing, what you're speaking, and what you are previously and will be doing all around us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Jesus and the disciples are leaving Judea in the south, going up to Galilee, okay? And then in verse four, it says, Jesus needed to go through Samaria. I'm gonna put this map up on the screen so you can see a map. This is the route that Jesus most likely took, the red line, okay? Going from the top to the bottom, from Judea up to the Galilee. The reason John makes note of this, because you wouldn't normally be like, here's the, you know, GPS 
coordinates that we took to get there. The reason he makes notes, note of the route that was taken was because this was not a route that any other Jew would have ever taken, including the disciples if they were going to, from Judea to Galilee. They would have gone, look at the blue lines, they would have gone to the west or to the east, always around, never through Samaria. You want to talk about racial tension? The racial tension between the Jews and the Samaritans went back 700 years in that region. And as a Jewish kid growing up, this is the area that your parents would have told you, you do not drive through Samaria. You don't go through that neighborhood. You always go around it. If you see a Samaritan, you go to the other side of the road. We do not associate with these people. They're less than humans. They're like dogs, Literally is how they would refer to Samaritans. You avoid them at all costs. So the Jews would always go around, never through Samaria. But the love of God has no racial, socioeconomic, or uh, geographical borders. Right? Romans 2.11 says, God does not show partiality and has no preference or prejudice. Jesus needed to go through Samaria because there was a human being there, Samaritan or not, that he needed to meet with. And I love that Jesus doesn't acknowledge how big of a deal it is for the disciples. He would have had the same upbringing. He knew, he knew how uh, probably scary this would have been. He doesn't even mention it. But John makes sure to mention it because this was a big deal to him. And it wasn't just a big social deal. It was actually going to be a big spiritual deal to them because this was the beginning of a revival moment for the disciples. Jesus right here is beginning to do something in them with their uh, understanding and perspective of God's kingdom that will continue to unfold all the way through the book of Acts, especially starting in Acts 10, when God gives Peter this vision of the Gentiles and is like, dude, stop avoiding them. We're 10 chapters into the Acts of the disciples. And he's like, stop avoiding the Gentiles. You need to go to them, bring the gospel to them. This is a moment right here for these church people, if you will. In this, we've got to see that Jesus isn't just concerned with the lost person in this story. He's actually concerned with, with the, the us's in this story, the people who've been in church for a long time. This isn't just about the Samaritan woman. Jesus is breaking religious traditions in the disciples and giving them a bigger perspective of his kingdom, his heart, and his plan for their lives and mission. And that's the first revival moment that we see in this story. Revival moment number one, Jesus is giving his people a new expanded perspective of his kingdom, his heart, and his mission. I think that God is doing that in this season as well. He is wanting to give us an expanded perspective. So they're walking through Samaria and the disciples go off in a town. Like I said, they get some food. Uh, Jesus is by himself. It says that he gets tired. Um, I, I love that it shows the humanity of Jesus. It's really hot outside. He sits down at a well. Verse seven, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Okay, I want us to see a few things here. First of all, um, this woman is by herself, okay? Second of all, John makes sure to, to tell us in the previous verse, verse six, that it's 12 noon. He tells us what time of day it is. Why? Well, women almost always went and got the water for their, their family in the first century, but they always did it in a group, 
never by themselves, and they always did it early in the morning. I grew up in the Coachella Valley in Palm Desert until I was 16, okay? I played football in the Coachella Valley. Uh, football is coming out of summer into fall. That means we would have what we called Hell Week in the month of August in uh, the desert. Three a day practices, one at like 6 a.m., one at uh, like high noon, and then one in the evening. The difference between the early morning practice when it was 90, 95 degrees and the sun was like over there coming over the mountains and the midday practice when it was 120 degrees and the sun was right there was literally night and day. And often the difference between me and my teammates either not throwing up and being hospitalized or throwing up and being hospitalized. They've since outlawed three-a-day practices for football in the Coachella Valley after all of our puking and hospitalization. The Middle East gets that kind of hot, that kind of hot. Noon is not the time when you would walk to the well, fill up a gigantic jug of water, put it on your head and walk back to town, which is why the the women would go in the morning and why it is so important that John makes note of what time of day it was. This woman was at the well when she could have been sure that no one else, no other women would be there. Later in verse 18, we get a clue as to why. When Jesus exposes the fact that she had been married five times and was now living in sin with a man who wasn't her husband. Now that may like, I mean, I don't, if you get married five times in our culture, even today, it's like, oh dang, dude, you got to figure this out a lot of time. But back then, if you got divorced one time, you were viewed as unclean, especially as a woman. But to be divorced five times and to now be living with someone who was not your husband, the, the, the level of shame and disgrace that you would have carried with you every day of your life would have been almost unbearable for this woman. She would have been shunned by her community, viewed as a town whore, and probably disowned by her family. So it's no surprise that she had a habit of going to the well in the middle of the day when she could be sure there would be no one else around. As for her shock that Jesus is speaking to her, Jews didn't speak with Samaritans. Men didn't associate with women, especially in public, because to associate with them was to give them honor and dignity. And most men didn't give women honor and dignity in the first century. And rabbis did not associate with sinners, especially with this reputation and story. So you can imagine her surprise when Jesus, a Jewish rabbi man, looks her in the eyes, shows her honor and dignity, and treats her like a valuable human being. And he actually does something very honoring to her and very dignifying when he asks her to give him a drink because Jesus was putting himself in a subjective place of needing something from her. It would have been very honoring for her. And this is why Jesus needed to go through Samaria to be at this well at this time. He is there to give this woman not earthly water, but eternal living water, as we'll see in a moment. And in this, we see revival moment number two, right? The first one was with the disciples. The second one, Jesus is meeting an individual right where she is at and bringing her eternal and abundant life. This is also what I'm praying for and what we're praying for in this season, man, that God would bring eternal life to people who are far from Jesus, that they would have a moment with him where they experience his goodness and his love and his compassion and they come to saving faith in him. This is revival right here, guys. It's not just a story. This is revival. Don't miss it. 
So Jesus asked her for a drink. She's like, what are you talking about? Why are you asking me for a drink? Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Okay, I want us to earmark this for a moment. Okay, we're gonna come back to it in just a few minutes. He says, if you knew the gift of God, he's talking about salvation. If you knew the gift of God and who you're talking to, he's talking about himself, we'd be having a different discussion. We're gonna come back to that in a minute. So then she's like, what are you talking about? Living water? Like you don't even have a bucket. How are you gonna get water? And he's like, yeah, the, the, the water I'm talking about, you don't need a bucket for. And she's like, what? He's like, this is eternal water. And she's like, that sounds awesome. I don't have to come to the well anymore. She totally doesn't get it, right? She does not get it. She totally misses it. And then Jesus is like, go get your husband in verses 17 and 18. And this is where I imagine everything kind of like went slow-mo. She got silent, probably hung her head as she confesses what Jesus is exposing, that she had been married five times and was now living in a sinful situation with a man who wasn't her husband. And then immediately she does what many of us do. She shifts the attention off of herself and she shifts it back to some other thing where she debates with Jesus about where we ought to worship. She's like, can't we just do it from over here at home? No, all these people are saying, you got to go over there to the church building. Literally, that's the discussion that they're having. Literally, that's the discussion that they're having. We'll talk about it more in two weeks. And Jesus engages with her on the, the subject of worship. And then she's like, well, you know what? The Messiah is going to come. When he comes, he'll, he'll tell us all about this stuff. And then Jesus says, verse 26, Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am the Messiah. Jesus reveals himself. And when Jesus reveals himself, everything changes. She drops her bucket. We'll look more at that next week. Goes home, tells everyone about Jesus. Skip down to verse 39. And many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Her community comes to faith in Jesus. This too is what we are praying for in this moment in history. What we got to see is that that big, huge revival moment in her community was preceded by these two other revival moments that both the disciples and the woman were missing. That's where we're focusing today. I just want to back up a moment to this moment with the disciples, okay? These are like the churchgoers, right? These are like the churchgoers. They're the, they're the many of us, okay? They grew up going to church. They grew up having a pretty good understanding of God. These are people who already knew Jesus. They'd already been spending time with him. They probably thought they, they had a good understanding in their minds of who he was, what he was about, or at least what the father was about. But Jesus is tearing down their ideas and their ideals that are contrary to his heart and his kingdom. This was a gigantic revival moment for them that would begin to change everything. But here's the deal. They were missing it. They were totally missing it. They couldn't see. How do we know they couldn't see? Because Jesus tells them to open their eyes. Okay, the disciples come back from getting food. They see him talking to a woman. They're tripping out. They're like, this is weird. Like, why is he doing this? Jesus, do you need something? They say, do you need something? Jesus, ask us if you need something. Don't ask her. They're tripping out. This is strange. I don't like it. It's uncomfortable for sure for them. The woman leaves to go tell her community about this. And in verse 35, Jesus says to the disciples, don't you have a saying? It's four months still until harvest. I tell you, Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Listen, you only tell people to open their eyes who cannot see or who are not looking. 
The disciples could not or didn't want to see what was happening, even though it was right in front of them. And even though it was Jesus doing it, guys, we have to pause and look to see if we see ourselves in this story. Is God doing something in our lives, in your life, in our community, in our culture that is a revival moment and we are totally missing it, maybe because we don't want to see it. Or we don't have a, a grid for that kind of a thing, which is what they, they didn't have a grid for the fact that the harvest wasn't just out there. The revival wasn't just out there in comfortable Judea. It was right here in uncomfortable Samaria. I bet Jesus was like, Pointing at the woman, the harvest is right. Look, the harvest is right now. It's right, it's in her. It's right now. It's right here, right now. I know it doesn't look like it, I think he's saying, but this is what I'm doing. What if Jesus is saying the same thing to us in this moment in history? Like, don't tell me, don't tell me that harvest is still away. Don't tell me it doesn't look like a revival because we're in the middle of something so uncomfortable. Don't tell me this isn't revival because it doesn't look like other revivals or what I thought revival would look like. Some people are saying to me, hey, dude, we got, we got to get back in church if we're going to see revival happen. Well, listen, Jesus wasn't at church. He wasn't at the synagogues. He wasn't at the temple. He was in some neighborhood was someone who was like very different than how he grew up and his disciples grew up. You know what the next revival is going to look like? Nope, you don't. And neither do I. But you can be pretty dang sure that it's not going to be like what we expected. In the 1960s, you know, that's when God really brought the last great revival to the United States. And a huge part of that was God saving a bunch of hippies, right? We, we talk about it with rose-colored glasses on now. But if you were an older Christian uh, who had been going to your church for 20 years in 1967 and then a bunch of hippies start showing up, you're probably not that excited about the situation, right? These people were getting saved, still smoking pot, coming off of acid trips, still sleeping with one another. All of them were anti-war, which was a very politically dividing thing in the middle of Vietnam, right? They looked weird. They smelled weird. They talked weird. They danced weird. They were coming straight out of the world, and so it was messy. They were being refined, and it didn't look like Jesus yet. It was uncomfortable and unexpected, and nobody could control it. And it was the thing that God was doing. Revival rarely looks like how you expect it to. No one expected revival to look like a bunch of hippies being saved, but it did. The disciples didn't expect revival to look like Samaria being saved, but it did. And it was hard and uncomfortable. God saving Gentiles was hard for first century Jews. That's why Paul is talking about it in every single letter. He's like, oh my God, the mind-blowing, magnificent wisdom of God that he would save Gentiles. He's tripping out. He's tripping out. There was so much prejudice deeply ingrained in them. They didn't even realize it, man. They didn't even call it prejudice. It was blowing their minds that God would be uh, taking away races to make one brand new race in Jesus. 
Part of the revival God was bringing in this moment was that he was uh, 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 dismantling the disciples' perceived ideas and prejudices about God and about others. And it wasn't just with race. It was the whole idea of like what God was like and what he was doing. And you know what? Right here, in this moment, Jesus does not apologize for it or even acknowledge that him going through Samaria is going to be very uncomfortable and maybe even scary for the disciples. He doesn't coddle or even seem to care about their perceived need for comfort. He doesn't sit them down and he's like, hey guys, it's gonna be crazy today. As they were like, hey Jesus, you're going the wrong way, it's this way. And he's like, no, we're going this way today. And they're like, didn't his parents tell him about Samaria? He doesn't sit them down. He doesn't even acknowledge it. Why? Because the life of the Christian is not about comfortability. Ultimately, it is about us being conformed into the image of Christ, which often comes at the expense of comfort, not because of it. Last Sunday, we stood right here in the sanctuary as we prayed for and sent out the Zavala family, young family, okay? Their kids are 12 and 7. Dami and uh, Rebecca are, I don't know, late 30s, early 40s. They're going to Mexico to the deep parts of Mexico where the indigenous peoples are who have never heard the gospel. People who speak indigenous uh, dialects that are so far from Spanish, okay? It's a 10 to 15 year journey that they're stepping out on this week with their young children. And during the Q&A time at our meeting, um, someone asked him, hey, can you tell us what, what, what happened in the beginning that led you to this? Like what was kind of the impetus? And I, without skipping a beat, I loved Rebecca's simple but powerful response. She said, what, what was the start? The Bible. She's like, this is what the Bible says to do. It's not that complicated. Like Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. So you're either gonna like be intentionally an active part of sending people to the nations or you yourself are gonna go to the nations. Is it gonna be uncomfortable? Yeah, it's gonna be super uncomfortable. Scary? Yeah, maybe. But you know what? God calls us to step out in faith in a situations that are often uncomfortable and scary. And so I'm just gonna say it straight up. God is calling some of you to pick up and actually physically move somewhere to be more in line with his mission and his call. And it might be a sacrifice. Maybe it's down the road. Maybe it's to another neighborhood. Maybe it's to another state. I'm not talking about moving to another state, by the way, so that you can uh, have a better financial situation and be more comfortable. That is the opposite of what I'm talking about. I'm talking about lining up with God's mission. Maybe it's to another country. For some, it is a, a vocational move. You're moving jobs to be more in line with God's mission. It's gonna be a little bit of a sacrifice. For some, it's a financial move. And it's gonna, in order to line more up with God's mission and his call, and it's gonna be some kind of sacrifice. And for some, it's a moving around maybe of priorities in order to line more up with, with God's heart. And it might be a sacrifice. Listen, I just wanna encourage you, if that's where Jesus is walking, that's the red line, man, you can't go like this. You gotta follow him. I can't promise you that it's gonna be fun, but I can promise you that it's gonna be fruitful. There's a revival moment there that God is inviting you into. I think it's part of what he's doing right now in the church in this moment in history. Guys, he is, uh, he is bringing us into our own uncomfortable 
Samarias, our own uncomfortable places to dismantle preconceived ideas about him, prejudices maybe. I don't want us to miss it because of fear, comfort, or a small view of God, which is why they missed it. I think God's saying, open your eyes, get on board with what I'm doing. So there's that revival moment with the disciples. And then real quick here, uh, there's the same kind of thing with the, the woman, right? She's like, God's bringing a revival moment to her life. She totally misses it. I told you to earmark verse 10. Let's read it again. Jesus answered her, if you knew, there it is. There's the open your eyes moment. If you knew the gift of God and who it is to ask you for a drink, then you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. It's the Greek word, that, if you knew, it's the Greek word, I do. It means uh, to uh, recognize what is already a reality. He's saying, if you could recognize, like if you could only see what is already true, then we'd be having a totally different conversation. You wouldn't be all caught up in this worship debate of where we're supposed to go to church and worship. You wouldn't be all caught up with your shame and being out here in the middle of the day. You wouldn't be all caught up with your physical needs of the water. We'd be having a totally different conversation, but she could not see. And I would like to propose that right now in this moment in history, maybe some of us can't see. God is moving right in front of our eyes, but we're just not seeing it for what it is. And that's the implication here, right? Is that God can be doing something profound right in front of us and we don't have eyes to see it yet. And so we got to pray, Lord, open my eyes and reveal yourself to me. Once Jesus revealed himself to her in verse 26, everything changed. She dropped her bucket and went home. She's like, oh my gosh, the Messiah, that should be our prayer right now. Lord, reveal yourself to us. And so I'll end with this. On a practical note, man, I just want to encourage you. Look around, pause and take stock like Emily and I did last week and be like, oh my gosh, that thing is disrupting our mental you know, process or our lives. Maybe it's the Lord. Oh, that thing is forcing me to pray more, but it sucks. Ah, maybe it's the Lord. That thing is super uncomfortable, but it's causing me to cry out to God. Maybe that's the Lord. That door keeps shutting and now I've got to look somewhere else. Maybe that's the Lord. This terrible thing is happening in my family. Man, maybe there is opportunity for a revival moment there. Just because it is uncomfortable does not mean it's not the moment. Sometimes because it's uncomfortable, we need to take stock and be like, oh, maybe this is that moment. I think there's things that are happening in our lives right now and God is wanting to invite us into those. I don't want us to miss it. Um, some of us can't see. We're not looking. I just want to encourage you, man. Open your eyes. Start looking. Some of us don't want to see. Gosh, man, you've got to see. You've got to see. Jesus is saying, open your eyes. Join in with what I'm doing. So next week, we're going to look at six reasons why the disciples and this woman missed it. Okay. Um, but today, I, I just want to partner with this prayer from Paul in Ephesians 1, 17 through 18. God, would you give us your Holy Spirit to reveal things to us and open our eyes so that we can see. If you want to pray, pray like this. Jesus, reveal yourself to me and help me to recognize what you're already doing. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. So, Lord, that is our prayer. I am asking. I am asking, Lord, for the people who cannot or don't want to see, including myself so often, 
that you would so obviously reveal yourself to us. I also don't want to be like some of the people in the 60s where stuff was happening and it wasn't like what they thought they were praying for. And yet it was exactly what you were doing. I don't want to miss that. I don't want to look back and be in 10 years and be like, all right, now I'm on board finally with God saving hippies. I don't want to miss 10 years of my life, Lord. I don't want to miss 10 years of opportunity. So I'm praying that you would help us to recognize the moments right in front of us. Even in our families, even in our vocations. Some of you are going to go see a family member you haven't seen in a while and you just think it's just for a visit or an old friend and they don't know Jesus. That very well could be the revival moment in their lives. Give us eyes to see, God. Open the eyes of our hearts, oh Lord.